Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We're caught up early today with David Cates, who's the CEO of Denison Mines Action Pack Conversation. We talk MA, roll ups, ESG, First Nations, permitting, freeze walls, and technical solutions. We also look to the future with regards to their field program and uh, exploration program. So if you want our thoughts and opinions on any of those topics, the conversation, David, or the company, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where you can also find detailed company reports and analysis. We've got commentary from experts from around the world on a variety of companies and commodities, including our weekly uranium show in its 51st week now, um, where we we give insights as to what is going on out there. It was truly fascinating. We do summaries of other interviews. In fact, all of our interviews to save you some time because we know you're busy people. We've got training courses on there. But most exciting and most importantly to us is our thriving community of uh, investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other in a nice, friendly and safe environment, free from judgment, trolling and abuse. And uh, you should go and join them at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. I think you'll really like it. David, how are you, sir? Matt, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm really glad to be back on and talking to you about all things uranium and Denison. It's been a long time. It kind of, kind of feels far too long, far too long. Um, how have you been keeping? Well, we're doing as best we can. We're busy. Um, you know, the, the investor interest in our sector and our company has just taken off, which is a super exciting thing for, you know, supporters that we've had for a very long time. Uh, following what we're doing to see others kind of catching on. But uh, at some time, at some, to some point, it's also uh, exhausting because we are dealing with many questions and, and, and we're really busy as well in, in our actual business activity. So exciting, exhausting, keeping well, all things considered. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And, and you yourself, you've been, you okay? You, where are you huddled up at home? Yeah, I huddled up in, in Ontario, uh, Toronto area, Canada, and, um, we're we're going through a bit of a tough spell right now with uh, with the pandemic. Government's got us shut in, so you know, calling in from the home office. But um, you know, in in the big picture, we can't complain. You know, my family's healthy, and I have the luxury of being able to work from home. So uh, good, good. You know, I'm, I'm I'm on the fortunate side here. Fantastic. Uh, well, we can talk about it in a bit, but co- I think COVID has been Uranium's friend, it seems. So um, I don't feel too sorry for you in that regard. Hey. Got a whole bunch of new followers since we last spoke. Lots more generalists coming in. Don't quite necessarily understand the uranium space or mining investment, quite frankly. So uh, we're going to um, help them understand a little bit more about you. But why don't you kick off with a one-minute summary of your business, and I'll pick it up from there. Perfect. And, and that's a great idea. So Denison's a, an, an advanced uranium developer. Uh, we're focused in the Athabasca Basin region in northern Saskatchewan. We have a portfolio of uh, development and exploration assets and really just want to call out uh, two to, to, to give the big picture for us. Uh, our flagship asset is Wheeler River. Uh, this is the largest undeveloped uranium uh, project in the eastern portion of the Athabasca Basin where we have all of the existing uh, mining and milling infrastructure in, in the region. Uh, and that project is going through the permitting process and environmental assessment process uh, and is really at the front of the line for development in the Eastern Basin. Now with that, uh, on top of that, and of course we'll talk more about Wheeler River, I'm sure, uh, another asset I want to just flag from our portfolio is our interest in the McLean Lake Mill. So we own 22.5% of the McLean Lake Joint Venture, which includes a number of undeveloped uranium deposits, but also the mill. 
And that mill is uh, operating under a toll milling contract with Cigar Lake. So, but for the temporary COVID shutdown of Cigar Lake, uh, Cigar Lake and McLean Lake work together as one production center, and they represent the only producing or actively operating mine right now in Canada for uranium. So does that mean your revenues turned off there? Well, look, Matt, we sold that revenue stream a few years ago uh, in a real savvy deal with APG, uh, Anglo-Pacific out of London. So it's worked out actually pretty well for us because the revenue from toll milling is turned off. Uh, but that hasn't affected us because we we already monetized that stream in 2017 and there is no sort of fallout to us with uh, the cigar like mine being shut down right now. Okay, fine. Lots has happened since we spoke. We, we, we won't even talk about all the shenanigans in the US with elections and RSA and uranium reserve funds, etc. I want to talk about some of the things that you have manufactured for yourself. You came up with quite a novel idea, which is going to raise some money and buy your own pounds in the market. Why did you do it? Well, look, it was uh, an unconventional strategy. Uh, evidently, it's become more conventional as we've, we've seen some others look to very do fashionable. It. Yeah, <laughs> it has become so. But um, look, to, to explain why we've done it, it is a bit of a journey uh, to understand our strategy because it was really a deliberate. And, and, and debated um, uh, approach, uh, transaction for us. A lot of it had to do with uh, two parts around our project, right? This is really a project financing initiative and it's not a, a speculative call on the uranium price, but um, we had to be well capitalized in the first part, you know, in the first place before we would consider a transaction like this. And so, you know, over the last 12 months, we've carried out a number of financings and we're in, we were in a position by the beginning of March where we were sitting with around $85 million in cash and investments. And really that was capital that would take us all the way through our feasibility study and environmental permitting for Wheeler River. Now that's an important part of this story because through that process, we've discovered and many others have discovered that the depth of investor interest in our sector has ballooned in the last few months. And there was a tremendous amount of unmet uh, investor interest in investing directly in companies like Denison. We saw that through our own financings. We saw it through other financings where there was massive oversubscription on, on, on financings that were being put into the market. This is where we started to think about, you know, we don't need that money. We don't need more money. We've got $85 million in cash and investments. We, we can see ourselves through feasibility study. You know, when you go through the conventional junior mining playbook, we would be well capitalized and we don't really need more money. And so it would really be a negative to go back to the market and just take cash for the sake of having more cash, right? That would be dilutive in a way because you'd be saying, well, today's the price that I wanna raise more money to fund my future project at, even though I'm funded for the next several years, right? And I think that's something that we, we wouldn't have been you know, pursuing because we do see value increasing over time as we de-risk our project and move it forward. So. But we didn't want to ignore the depth of investor interest and the potential for us to significantly de-risk future project financing um, efforts for Wheeler River. And so that's where we developed this idea where we could access that capital, but rather than put that capital just as cash on the balance sheet, we could park it in a dynamic store of value that would be leveraged similar to our existing asset base. And that was the concept there was let's go buy physical uranium and hold it 
as a long-term asset. And then down the road, when we go to project finance, use it as a really reliable source of collateral to give us a different type of access to credit markets. Uh, and, and now, you know, we sit with around $100 million Canadian in physical uranium uh, once we've closed all those contracts against a project that has upfront capital of under $300 million to Denison, right? So we've got about a third of our capital covered. And that's really what we were trying to do was just de-risk that, but without just holding stagnant cash. You know, as uranium price changes, our invent, our value of that of that material will change. It might go down. We're, we're, we, we are uh, of a view that it's more likely to go up, but it isn't really about the value going up, right? It was really just about having the same or similar leverage to our existing assets. And that's where I say we broke the dilution model because we raised money to buy assets. We didn't raise money to just fund operations with the same assets. Well, that, that, that's the bit that intrigued me, okay? Because saying I wanted to address the unmet demand for investment in uranium, that, that, that's, a, that's a bold move. And I think shareholders would typically go, that's dilutive, why are you doing that? But this feels highly structured and potentially, as you say, well, one would hope that the price of uranium goes up and appreciates. And in, in that sense, it's a, it is a structured finance deal. Mm -hmm. And that's perhaps why you haven't seen dilution or angry shareholders. But there, there's a few other players out there where it doesn't quite make sense. But I'll, I'll come back to that in, in, in a second here. Yeah. So just focus on what, what you are going to do with this. So you're saying we've, we've invested in an appreciating asset, in all likelihood, which will finance our capital needs or could contribute significantly towards our capital expenditure needs when we get into production. So let's talk about that. The other big bit of news, the other bit, big bit of news is you made an announcement about the um, an agreement with the English River First Nations. That's the that's an important step for you moving towards permitting because that's been the big elephant in the room for you, the ability to get this thing permitted. Technically and environmentally, it was a problem for you. So um, tell me about that agreement and, and maybe uh, explain how that's helped you. Well, look, I mean, permitting is, I, I won't agree that it's been a, a problem for us, right? Uh, I think it's been flagged as, you know, rightly as something that's uh, on our road to production right is that we need to we need to work through the permitting process and so it's right for people to understand that these are milestones ahead and that these are processes we we will have to go through before we can produce uh, but look a lot of the, the there's 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 a number of elements to the permitting process for uranium development project in canada some of them are technical right the technical elements are really scientifically uh, assessed and driven by our regulators, right? They are going to be looking at science around the project and the potential impacts of any project to the environment, right? We have uh, that process is ongoing. Uh, it, it's a very busy year in 2021 focused on the technical side of things, right? Uh, we have a whole army of technical experts going through these different elements of any op of, of a mining operation and the interactions it could have with the environment, right? Could be water, could be air, could be noise, like these types of things. They're all being studied. And that part of the process really is technical and science driven. There's another part of the process though that is softer. And this is where the English River uh, agreements, uh, I think really come in. 
is it is a, cons a consultation and engagement process that moves side by side with those technical assessments, right? Uh, our project is located in the traditional territory of the English River First Nation, and it's also in the homeland of the Métis. And so these, the, the, these are indigenous groups along with municipal communities that have ties to this area that we will have not only a regular, well, we'll have a regulatory obligation to consult with, but we also have, I don't wanna call it necessarily a moral obligation, but it's a, it's, it's a sensible thing to do to be working with uh, anyone who may have a potential tie or impact related to our project. Now, English River, uh, it's a very important group to us. Uh, we have a long history of having been through the communities that are connected to English River, um, even before we had our PFS, right? Even before we were talking about ISR mining. Uh, these agreements definitely reflect those years of discussions that we've had. And what they really reflect now is a common commitment to work together towards the going through this engagement and consultation process for the environmental assessment, right? So we have guidelines on how we're going to go through that, how that's going to be funded. And on top of it, we reached an even broader agreement around all of our exploration activities in the Athabasca Basin that might overlap with English River traditional territories. And that's the part that gets me very excited. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm pleased that we have this path forward on Wheeler River. Uh, in terms of the engagement with 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 English River, but it's also the exploration agreement that reflects a really progressive approach from Denison to working with indigenous communities in Saskatchewan, because exploration agreements are not the norm uh, for uranium mining in Saskatchewan, and and we've really embraced the opportunity to create a new norm that does reflect uh, our our respect for the indigenous communities that do have ties to the territories where we're operating. Okay, because so it's a participation and funding agreement plus LOI in connection with uh, advancement of the proposal of the ISR project, right? So what I'm trying to work out is how meaningful is this? Is this a, we're gonna agree to try and find a way of working together or is there is a bit more commitment to th than that? Well, it's participation in funding, right? And I think that says a lot is that English River and Denison have reached an agreement where we'll be participating in the environmental assessment process. We'll be participating in working towards and negotiating a bigger agreement uh, related to the Wheeler River project and de-risking essentially that part of this project, right? In terms of um, you know uh, community engagement, community support, and the EA because they do interrelate, right? One part that the regulators will be doing is working with the potentially impacted communities to understand how they feel about the project and how the project may or may not impact them. So when you say participate, you're paying for everything though. They're not paying for anything. Well, yeah, look, we're gonna be funding. It's participation and funding. So there's definitely a commitment for us to fund uh, this process with English River. But more importantly, there's an agreement on what the process is. That's, that's, I think, key to all of this, is us having a common view of what the process looks like and involves, right? That way we can really just move assertively on that process, right? Rather than spending time back and forth talking about, well, what will we be doing? Right, well, okay, well, that, that's my point. That's what I'm trying to get to. We see these sorts of mm -hmm. announcements by companies and it's just wishy-washy and it's just headline-grabbing stuff. I wanna know 
how serious this is, how involved, how engaged, how committed, how much money, how long is it going to take? And is this just trying to look like you're a good ESG citizen, uh, social, socially aware of the First Nations around you? Or is, it, is there some meat to it? Oh, no, these are these are substantive agreements like, you know, there are detailed work plans, detailed scopes of work in terms of what we will be doing and how we'll be working together to move forward with the permitting and the environmental assessment process at Wheeler River. That's your and bit. If you take- I'm, I'm interested in the First Nations, OK, what it means for them, you know, you bolting them on or you truly integrating them into the process that you're going through. So you're paying for it. These are surveys and these are, these are commitments that you need to do anyway. But getting them involved mm-hmm. is smart, obviously it's smart and it's essential and it's the right thing to do. But I want to know how engaged they are. What's this going to mean well, for you? Well, Matt, I mean, look, look, it's a good question. It's a really good question, but let, let me put it this way. I mean, we didn't sign the agreement with ourselves, right? Uh, and, and English River First Nations, they don't have to sign any agreement with us. So this has been a process of determining what is a mutually acceptable, a mutually beneficial process to move Wheeler River forward and to make sure that we do incorporate the feedback and the results of our engagement with English River, right? These are the kind of things that are actually substantively in uh, these agreements. Okay, got it. So we'll, we'll see that process is gonna last. How long, how much money are you spending on that? What's the outcome if you do all the things you hope to do? Yeah, look, I mean, I think the first notable milestone will be the submission of the draft environmental impact statement. So we've got a plan to be working through the the legwork on that over the next 12 months and to be in a position to submit that draft EIS the beginning of 2022, right? Now, I do want to make sure we touch on the exploration agreement as well, because you're right. The, the focus is on participation, funding, and the LOI in connection with the advancement of ISR at Wheeler River. Absolutely correct. But really important to understand our relationship with English River is going beyond that with the exploration agreement. And similarly, the exploration agreement is a substantive agreement. There are financial commitments. There are commitments around permitting and the processes involved for us to operate in English River traditional territory. And this type of agreement is not common in uh, uranium mining in the Athabasca Basin. We are blazing a trail here in terms of indigenous uh, partnership with this agreement. And it does show a sustained support from Denison to English River beyond what we're talking about at just uh, an English River, beyond what we're talking about at Wheeler River, right? And so that is an important part of this dynamic because we are really trying to build a durable partnership between our company and English River First Nations. Brilliant. I look forward to seeing how that uh, works out, you know, and, and what, what happens at the end of it. You refer to it as the kind of the soft uh, component. If you get the buy-in of your partners and the endorsement of, of your partners, that's, that's gonna, you're going to say, well, that's going to help our EIA application and our ability to get permits. The other hard bit to this, the non-soft bit, is you being able to technically solve the freeze pay at the freeze wall, a lot of water. It's in a, it's in a basin, yeah. I guess, by definition, there's a lot of water. So, you know, you've got to solve that problem. Where are you with that? Well, again, you're right. There's the, the soft and the hard. Um, and I just want to say on the soft before we go onto the hard, like it, it's not just about um, moving the EIA forward, right? Obviously, that's an important element of our business. 
Um, we do have a genuine interest in sharing benefits and finding mutually beneficial arrangement arrangements with uh, you know indigenous groups and communities where we're operating. Uh, so this is something that we've genuinely committed to, and it is more about just the way we want to do business with durable partnerships. As right? you should, as all companies should, and I commend you for it. None of that counts for anything if you can't solve a permanent, sustainable, sure. freeze wall solution. So where are you? Look, that's that's a great question. And you're absolutely right about that. Um, look, we're, we've done really well on, on the technical side of things over the last two and a half years. Uh, we have been de-risking every, at every turn to the point where we're now really focusing on uh, a 2021 and 2022 field program and more information to come on both of these. But the intent here is to bring us technically to the point where we will be at a feasibility study level of comfort by, you know, the end of 2022, right? And so all of this has been building on work that we've done one step at a time, right? It's been a progressive approach. We started in 2019 with initial ISR field testing to prove that we could move solution through the ore body. We, we, we were in the field for months. We drilled many holes. We had, you know, this actual testing in our ore body. Uh, and about a year ago, we came out with a report from our technical QP on the hydrogeology that said, look, the actual pump and injection tests that Denison ran and the hydrogeologic modeling that we've carried out with all of this data actually tells us that they've achieved proof of concept on the ability to move solution like an ISR mine. So that's been hugely successful. Uh, partway through well, to the tail end of 2020, we, we did adopt a design change on the freeze containment. And so we've moved away from a freeze dome and we've adopted a freeze wall design. Now, this is a, a massive step for us in that the freeze dome, while we've always felt was, was technically quite feasible because it would be relying on existing directional drilling technologies used in the oil sands and ground freezing is a very common thing in the Athabasca Basin. So we're just kind of putting those two things together. There was no doubt that there was a higher level of technical risk associated with the dome than what we've devised now with the freeze wall. And maybe important to just unpack that a little bit because you know, a freeze wall in the Athabasca Basin is actually extremely ordinary, right? So at MacArthur River and Cigar Lake, they're doing exactly what we will do in the freeze wall design. They're drilling holes from surface using a diamond drill bit, and they are casing those holes to depth with a double-lined case, you know, double-lined pipe that circulates a freeze brine, kind of like you'd have at a hockey rink or an ice rink to freeze the ice through that pipe. And then they are freezing the water that's in the rock to create basically ground of ice. And that ice is then competent. And at Cigar Lake, for example, they are mining underneath it, right? They're using that to create stability in their ore body and above. And MacArthur River, they're using it as a curtain in places to keep water out of their mine, right? What we'll be doing is creating a fence all the way around our well field from surface. So basically create a cylinder from surface down, tied into the competent basement rock, and then it will create this freeze fence all the way around. And our intent is to keep our ISR mining solution in. So keep the water out because we don't want the dilution, but keep the ISR mining operation and the solution in the cylinder. Now, from a technical standpoint, being able to complete these drill holes, 
and that kind of freeze wall is quite conventional. So just by design change, we've made a massive step forward on the freeze containment. One of the most important parts though is the environmental piece, right? Because now, uh, instead of having this dome, you know, 400 meters below surface that we were piercing with the ISR wells, we now have everything from surface down within our freeze column, if you want to you know, call it that. And that's a real advantage from an environmental standpoint, because there's no longer this risk that your ISR wells that, you know, are operating above the dome to surface could rupture, be damaged, and that you'd have, uh, you know, an excursion of, of mining solution. Now we have the entire operation contained within this freeze perimeter. And we're quite uh, upbeat in terms of what that will mean for the in, for the permitting process, in terms of people understanding the the environmental impacts. Like we've really created a failsafe around the operation now. How are we um, sure that the dome solution was the right solution for you? Well, at the time, right, the the dome was really designing um, it was really replicating the textbook for ISR mining, right. So, and maybe a bit of a history lesson might make sense on that, right? Like, you know, typical ISR environment, you you know, for uranium is you're going to have a confining layer below your deposit, confining layer above your deposit, and you're going to be mining in the middle. And so in the Athabasca Basin, we have the confining layer below. We don't have a confining layer above. And so the dome was meant to replicate that by at depth creating this chamber that essentially was creating the textbook or closer to textbook environment. What was really important was all the test work we did in 2019. With all of that pump and injection testing right in our ore body, we discovered that solution that we inject into the ore body at 400 meters does not actually migrate vertically. It, it Minimal migration vertically because the ground itself is disrupted. It's broken up. This is all about this type of deposit at that depth. Solution moves laterally. That started to open up the idea of moving away from the dome because maybe we don't need a top on this deposit. And that's what got us into using the wall design where we could now actually con contain the entire operation and realize that we we don't, if we pump injection, if we inject a uh, solution in 400 meters deep, it doesn't start coming back up. It stays there. And especially when we're then pumping it out from that depth. So, you know, now we've realized through actual field work that the cap isn't at all needed. And that's allowed us to then design a better form of freeze containment that's better for the environment. And it really reduces our operational risk. And really important element we haven't touched on yet allows us to develop the mine in a phased way. So we don't need to dome the entire deposit up front. We can create a wall around a first phase and then extend it to a second phase and a third phase. And that should allow us to reduce our upfront capital costs on the, on the freezing and really allow us to be more nimble as we develop the deposit over the life of the mine. Okay, I, the reason I ask this and the question I'm about to ask you is because you need to deal with this to persuade people that you should be given a permit. Be, you know, so technically you thought you had the right solution and with all things te technology, there's something better comes along because of better new, new thinking, new, new data and, and, and you change things. Um, 
so I, I kind of, I'm not necessarily concerned that you, you've gone from one to the other. It's, it's more an evolution. So that, that's fine. Yeah. What happens if we have a scenario like a, another Fukushima, some sort of black swan event, market crashes, mm-hmm. you guys go bust. You've, you, you've got to keep this, this freeze ball going. The, the, it takes energy. It takes, yeah, he, he deals with that. Whose liability is that in that scenario? Well, look, so in, in, oper- so in operation, like this is a very reasonable question, questions that we get like all the time through the community consultation process. I mean, people are, are rightly concerned about operating these mines and, and even closure uh, and, and how they will be, how they'll sustain uh, in, in good and bad times. Number one, um, with our cost profile, I do think we have a very good prospect of operating even in very bad markets, right? Because we have such but, a low but cost. All, but you know what I mean? All, all empires rise and fall. So let, let's let's go with the water. 40 years no, down fair, the line, fair enough. you're long gone. Uh, the company, whatever, bad times. How does something like this, because it's going to be sustainable, because you're talking about a yeah. good ecosystem. And I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but so tell us what's the answer. Yeah, so look, the freeze wall, right? Um, it, it will stay up until the mine has been reclaimed, okay? There is no doubt a cost to installing it, and there's a cost to maintaining it. I will say that the cost to maintaining it is low because it's one of those things where when you build an, an ice block, right, and once it's frozen, it doesn't take a lot of energy to keep it frozen when it's in the ground. But to your point, there are uh, quite clear requirements from the government of Saskatchewan around any mining operation where, for example, we will need to post financial assurances that cover the complete closure cost of this mine uh, as soon as we are essentially in operation, right? Now, we already do that with our interest at McLean Lake. And so the concept is that if, for example, Denison disappeared, right, like literally, poof, we disappeared one day, the money is already on deposit, it's already secured so that someone else can come in and do whatever it takes to shut the mine down or and not just shut it down, reclaim it, right? So the government of Saskatchewan has very strict and stringent process for that and we will have to comply with that and post that type of financial security. Right, so you're going through a process now of looking at your new design and it's from last year, but it's still, it's still it's a new design. Um, will that have delayed things as far as the permanent process is concerned? Are you putting your timelines out? What have you heard or what do you know with regards to that? Because when we talked last May, you said two to three mm-hmm. years, easy. Yeah, so we've been, well, easy. Nothing's actually easy. Come on, that's not the quote. But, but um, look, we, we were delayed by COVID-19, right? That's, that's the real delay. This time last year, we were about to start building, you know, a, 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 road, tr- a road show together uh, to tour through the communities in northern Saskatchewan and talk about our project right now. You're right. We would have been talking about a freeze dome this time last year. So we took the pandemic delay because really we, it was not right for us to start touring during the, the onset of this pandemic. We paused the environmental assessment process through 2020. We took that time and we moved certain files on the EA forward, including this freeze wall design. And so now with that freeze wall design settled, we've restarted the EA in January and all this consultation. And so you know, in, in terms of will there be a delay because of this design? There won't, because really we took the COVID delay 
and moved the design forward. And now we're at the right point in terms of consultation where we can consult on the design that we're moving forward with, which is the freeze wall. The freeze wall does have the potential though to shorten our timelines for construction because of the phased approach, right? We no longer have to dome or freeze the entire deposit to start mining. We can just create that fence around our first of five phases, which is a much smaller endeavor than setting that full dome over the deposit. Okay, you're bustling to tell us about this phased approach. So let's talk, <laughs> let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Because I think one of the things I liked when we talked last May was a slightly unique approach to the CapEx solution. It, it could have been a very big CapEx number. It's sub 300 million from, from last year. And you're, you're suggesting it perhaps could even go lower with this, with this new setup. Um, so I, I did like that a lot. It was uh, kind of unique and sort of saying, oh, it's about scale. This is about getting into production. So let's, let's assume permits are got, got, they are granted. This phased approach, that's going to be what, market dependent or what, what, how are you planning it out? What are the options for you? Yeah, look, I mean, the, the phases are not, they're not that complicated. Uh, it's really just about spending that capital for freezing over the life of the mine rather than freezing all upfront. And so there is real potential for us to reduce our upfront capex on freezing because we're no longer freezing the entire deposit. We will freeze in phases. Now, it will mean that capital will go to sustaining capex rather than initial capex. But when you play that out through the life of the mine and you look at things like cost of money and the NPV, like we're pretty confident that the phased approach will have a very positive impact overall on the project likely also reduce that upfront capex. And really, when you look at a developer, that upfront capex is really important because the capital comes from somewhere. It's not coming from existing cash flows. And that's how we're trying to manage and maximize the value we can create for our shareholders. And that's where we were talking last year about the phased approach. I mean, we could build Phoenix and Griffin together and spend a billion dollars up front and we'd have a bigger NPV, but we'd also be taking, we'd also have to you know, raise that billion dollars up front Right here, we can raise, you know, we're looking at about $300 million up front for Denison's share, right? We're 90%. And that can be the catalyst that starts cash flow, that gets our company running and really minimizes the dilutive effect to our shareholders of starting the mine. The phased approach is also important from a risk standpoint. You know, what we'll have to do to start this mine up is now much smaller scale from freeze from a freezing standpoint. A lot of things happen when people build mines, right? A lot of things can go wrong. Anytime you can take something like a big process of creating a large freeze dome and simplify it into drilling diamond drill holes in a small, you know, 25,000 meters of diamond drill holes to be a first phase, like that is a win for de-risking project construction, because the risk around doing that is just, just fundamentally much lower than setting in this directional drill hole dome over the entire deposit. And so we see that as a big win with this phased approach as well, is that we're just simplifying that startup construction process as well. Okay, I, I understand that giving yourself some optionality on that. Good, like kind of like the way you structure the car price last year. Good. You, 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 you've, thought, you've thought about this one. Can I just, I'm, I need to come back because this question is sort of slightly bugging me. I didn't ask with regards to the buying pans in the marketplace. So I think it has been positioned 
um, by by some observers as, oh, fantastic, Denison are going out there and they're mopping out all this mobile inventory in the marketplace. Well, well done then, problem will be solved at that point. You're saying to me, no, the problem you were trying to solve was I'm addressing um, unmet demand for investment in junior equities, right? One, the byproduct of that is maybe mopping up some mobile inventory, but there's a lot out there. And what kind of I was surprised by was how quickly you got access to it. What is that? Because you bought, you bought, you bought it pretty quick, right? Within a month. Yeah, and and so look, there's a, let's. I'm glad you brought it back up because I think there's a few more things we can touch on here. Um, so let, let's talk about you know how how we mopped up the material, but but before that, let's just talk a little bit more about what we'll do with those pounds, right? Because I I think this is again something that's misunderstood in some camps around the strategy. Like it is a store of value. For, for to support future project financing. Okay, what does that mean? So it could mean that we borrow against these pounds, right? Use them as collateral. We are not trying to sell these pounds to raise money later, right? That would make it sort of speculative. We, if the price goes up, great. We think that if the price stays the same, it's still that's actually the strategy. Have a hundred million dollars that we can of material that we can borrow against, and then ultimately you borrow against that material, you build your mine. You pay off the debt. The debt's been low cost because it's secured against that material. And that material becomes available like partway through your mine life to sell to your customers, right? That's what we're trying to do with this material. The other things you can do is help you contract with utilities. You know, having a new mine or building a new mine is a tough thing for a utility to support because they want to make sure they get the pounds. Well, no better way to de-risk that than to already have the two and a half million pounds so that the utility customer can be comfortable, they will get deliveries from you. So that's that's really what we we're trying to do, not trying to mop up the spot market, right? Now that said, we there is that uh, you know collateral benefit that to acquire this uranium for that strategy, we have been in the spot market. Now we were cautious around how we did this. Um, we are not entirely sensitive to price, you know, like it, it wasn't a, you know, a razor thin margin for us. I mean, we could pay a range of prices and we'd still be accumulating that store of value. So that gave us a lot of flexibility as to how we would approach this. I, I have heard sort of this feedback that, well, it looks like they acquired that two and a half million pounds pretty easily, right? Well, I'll tell you, it was not that easy. Um, you know, we've, we've guided that we have deliveries as far out as October, right? So these pounds were not all available today. We couldn't back up the truck and just say, hey, put the pounds in right now. And they were flowing out of the taps of the market. Um, we had to work pretty hard to find these pounds. And we have many, many transactions. You know, we did not go and hit three transactions to get two and a half million pounds. I mean, we are approaching 20 different transactions to get up there. Lots of different pieces, lots of different pockets. And I have no doubt that we did end up sweeping off a good chunk of the material that was mobile to the market in the near term, but also in that sort of next eight to 10 months. Now, there will be more material. It's, there's, there's always places where material will come out, but it's at what price? And you know, we certainly saw that as soon as we started taking chunks, Prices were moving up to be able to liberate pounds into that market again. So it it has mopped up 
the uh you know not just us but others acting at the same time we have mopped up the low-hanging fruit in the market and i think sellers are more selective right now and we can expect that the price should see some level of stability we're not the only ones commenting that you know the price reporters and others are saying this seems to have set a new level that will that they expect to hold around 30 dollars okay well that was going to be my question you know because it had been as low as 27 in the last couple in a couple of weeks it's up around 30 31 yep. you know so it's moved a lot and it's since you guys and some of the copycat no copycats, I think, a fair phrase to use, you know, because it was a, it was quite an innovative thing for a junior equities uh, company to to do. I know you've kind of got the history. You hold you hold pants, so I, you know there's a track record. But there are others. I'm thinking of UBC. It, it, it feels a bit more of a marketing ploy with them. It, a, a boss where it felt like, like as you say, they they hope to be in near term production at the, when the price is right, but it gives them the permission to maybe have conversations now with its security of pounds uh, acquired. And we've even seen uh, Mr. Gorenson at uh, Encore, a small amount, but it definitely felt like a marketing ploy. But do you expect to see more of this? Is it is it de rigueur? Well, look, it's 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 hard. I've I've been of two minds on this whole thing because obviously we worked very hard to put this this strategy together, and we think it's a great strategy. So I can't be overly critical of others. But it's a great strategy for you. My point is, you hold you already with the position of holding. Yeah, we already pants, have experience right? doing that, right? Yes. So you've got experience of doing that. It makes sense. I understand the strategy why you would do it. But for others, I'm I'm a. I'm struggling a little bit. It, it, it was make great TV. People are going, what's going on? What's it going to do? Will it mop up pounds? Is it a good strategic move? And everyone's talking about it again. And I think and it's driven the price up a little bit. But utilities don't care, it seems. Not, there's, there's not a, a lot of bunch of new RFPs as a result. Well, look, it's 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 interesting. The utilities are, are um, they're cautious and... Uh, one thing that they that, that I don't believe that they will respond to is this concept of the hashtag uranium squeeze, right? Um, I, look, it, could it be perceived that that's what's happening? I understand why people would say that, but let, let's be honest about the quantities, right? Like take Yellowcake, take Denison, take UEC, take Boss, uh, take Encore. It, it's sizable, but it's not more sizable than the buying activity we've seen from Cameco for the last several years, right? So we should all be grateful that this activity is happening and it is assisting with the draining of the swamp of these, you know, free pounds. And they're being parked in places like a Denison where we're saying, look, these pounds don't come out until after we're in production, right? Like yellow cake has got them locked up like a UPC has them locked up, right? So this is all very good, but the utilities are not, in my mind, they're sophisticated. They're not gonna bite to say, well, this is a uranium squeeze and we must be called to action. That said, they, they, they have to be looking at this to understand what a company like Denison is seeing in this opportunity and to realize that we're seeing this ability to access capital and buy uranium as something that is attractive to our business. And that is in competition with their business, right? they would like to be able to buy those pounds. They haven't been rushing to buy those pounds because they believe that they're there. And the, the, the narrative in the market is changing and they have to understand that there are other financial players that could come in and see 
these pounds in this market as attractive investments, right? And these types of different transactions should be cluing them in that people are looking at these pounds in the spot market at these prices differently. And that maybe those pounds in the spot market will not be there for, the, for them as utilities, the way they've been expecting them to be there. It's very interesting, Matt, like when we're buying pounds in the market and we're taking deliveries out into October and we're seeing that the people who are buying alongside us in some cases are traders, right? These are guys who are supposed to have be the conduit from produced pounds from you know Uzbekistan or wherever it is. They're supposed to have the material to sell to the market and they're having to buy in the market because they don't have a trading business if they don't have inventory, right? That's something that should be on the radar of market watchers to realize that, you know, the depth may not be there the way that people expect it to be. Yeah, but utilities are managing their budgets. They'd rather have their money in their back pocket with the option of paying a little bit more further down the line. So that they retain control of their money rather than stocking up now at a bit low prices and then not be able to do things like maintenance of their own facilities or other, they've got other energy um, sources which they, they need to fund. So it, it, it's I think they're sensible and why should they reveal which, their, their cards? And as for, yeah, there are other buyers out there, metal buyers in the market, there always are. Mm-hmm until there's no market and then they go off and do something else. So um, that, none of that, I think, is, is surprising in itself. But I, I think the bit which um, I'm sort of intrigued by is why some of these companies felt the need to emulate what you did because their business models and business, and, and the plan is very different from yours. That, that's the, that's the okay. bit that's confusing. Yeah, you, you're going to have to get those guys on and, and ask them that question, you know? <laughs> I will. Some of them won't come on. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, look, I, just, I just kind of wanted, wanted to deal with that kind of mopping up issue because it, it, you know, it's been yeah. talked about, and I think there's some. It makes a delightful conversation as ever. You know, we, we've we've had a, a weekly uranium show for the last fifty-one weeks, and there's always something to talk about. It's a fascinating, fascinating space. It's intriguing um, space. Um, look, and, and, and I'm so conscious of time here, um, and you promised to come on again um, soon, so I, I don't feel I need to get it all in now. Um, talk to me about a little bit, just just headlines around, you know, field program exploration you know you've got a stack of money in here now you've got to give us some clues as to how you're going to be spending it look absolutely and and let's we'll we'll, we'll leave this as a teaser um for for our next update but um 2021 is a big year for us uh it's you know we will be in the field uh, we've got guidance out on a 20 million dollar budget uh, for wheeler river for evaluation and really the purpose here is to install a five spot commercial scale test pattern uh, and take our, our actual work that we've done over the last two years to a commercial scale level where we can test the ability to operate an ISR mine in this pattern. Now, this pattern alone is in our ore body. It's in an area that has, you know, like I think it's somewhere in the range of two to three million pounds just within that test pattern. The, the intent is to be able to operate that pattern with water and tracers this year at a sort of a commercial scale, use that information and data to then build uh, a program for 2022 where we would bring in a live mining solution and actually carry out a field uh, leach test, right? 
And that would be the ultimate way for us to de-risk this project uh, ahead of a feasibility study is to actually demonstrate that we've leached the uh, uranium in, the, in this field test in a commercial pattern. So following along for 2021 is important. Uh, we will have more de-risking news throughout the year uh, in terms of completing the well pattern, in terms of operating with the water and tracer test, collecting more data, all of that stuff very exciting for us. And then ultimately setting us up to do an even more advanced test in 2022. At the same time, we do have exploration planned for the year. Uh, back at Wheeler River, we had some great results uh, that we reported uh, beginning of this year from drilling late last year. We've discovered a new high grade zone four kilometers away from Wheeler River on K West, you know, grades up over 7.6% uh, in a brand new area with, that's open entirely on strike, you know, hundreds of hundreds of meters either way and in the right position, right? We've hit this mineralization at that unconformity, which does make it potentially analogous to Phoenix. The possibility of finding a satellite deposit or any other ISR amenable deposits at Wheeler is just really amazing blue sky for us because you know we see what we can do at Phoenix, and you know, we can talk about uh, Waterbury and THT another time, but we've done other studies now on smaller ISR deposits where you already have access to a processing plant. And we know that finding anything in this vicinity to Phoenix will be very positive for the overall project economics and could extend life, could increase rates of production. Uh, so this is a case where, act, where exploration really does have a very quick and tangible potential benefit if we are able to delineate another ISR pod. So stay tuned for, for on both of those channels, uh, definitely throughout the year. Okay, that's the teaser for that one. So I'll leave it, one, one last question. This is, sort of, this is coming out of, um, okay, there's a bunch of money there. And yeah. we've talked about some people doing things for marketing reasons, some doing because it's strategic and it's you know, fundamental to their, their business. M&A, roll up. People are talking about it. People are saying it's inevitable. They're, and the CEOs that I talk to, everyone knows what the good assets look like and what the good companies look like, and everyone knows what the bad ones look like. But that's not going to stop the inevitable thing, which happens in mining is, Someone's going to roll up a bunch, a mixture of all of the above and create some potential super behemoth in uh, the shape of a, 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 uranium, a large uranium uh, company, which fundamentally doesn't stack up, but looks great on paper. What do you, do you think someone's going to do a roll up? Is, is that person or is that company going to be Denison? Uh, or is it, you're going to leave that to others? Well, look, it's a, it's a totally rational question to ask as as uh, the uranium market sort of returns to life, right? I mean, you see, you've seen it in the gold sector, where as soon as there's sort of that life in that in in, in that uh, commodity, you know, people do look to consolidation. What I'll say about the uranium space is that it's 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 a pretty small space. Um, we we've been familiar and are familiar with pretty much every asset in the sector, and that's been the case for the last you know number of years. Uh, there aren't many new assets that I think change the menu of things available for consolidation, right? Um, I think if consolidation was going to happen amongst the junior sort of developer crew, uh, it's it probably would have been considered or looked at through some of the tough times as a way to sort of create scale, things like that. Um, so, you know, absent something new, 
coming out. I'm not so sure um, that, you know, we'll see, um, you know, that much consolidation. There's definitely some, some pairings that I think make some sense, but they haven't happened to this point. So one has to wonder, you know, what, what will be the catalyst for them to happen next? What, um, obviously anything new is something we would follow with great interest, right? Anything that's a discovery that has that ISR potential, you know, speaking on, on behalf of our company, we're, we're going to look at with, with great interest. Um, there, there haven't really been those types of discoveries because people haven't been looking for those types of deposits. And so my answer on the roll up on the Denison side is more that we're going to look probably within our portfolio to discover those types of assets. Uh, because we've got the exploration team to do that and you know nobody else has found them so we'll take our team go look for those deposits try to build organically but you know i think there's a bigger picture discussion you know above us that says like what will happen in our sector um and you know you've got an interesting situation where you've got developers that are moving assets forward at a rate that's you know much faster and with much more motivation than any of the majors. But at the same time, you have the majors commenting on um, how short the market will be, right? So the, the narrative out of some of the majors has, has evolved over the last three or four years where it was a commentary on, well, there should be no new investment in greenfield exploration and it will be an incumbent's recovery. Well, I don't think I disagree with that. I mean, if you have an existing mine, then you're probably going to be able to exploit the rising price before a developer. But then the narrative has pivoted over the last call it year to say, well, um, it's not just one MacArthur River that needs to come back online. It's maybe five of them, right? So, okay, well, that's that's interesting uh, because the majors don't have five MacArthur Rivers. Uh, so I think that, and and frankly, you know, you probably do need greenfield development to be able to deliver five MacArthur rivers. And so I think that starting should, should be starting to flag for people that as we move forward in this cycle, the companies that have advanced their assets, the companies that are in a position where they can uh, produce or are producing, those ones will be the sort of ripest cherries for the majors when they look to fill in those five MacArthur rivers that they're that they that they will need. I, know, I, t- I totally get that, you know. And we, like I say, we we discuss this weekly at you know cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, the weekly uranium show where we we talk about some of these issues. Those are good problems to have. My concern is the way that the game is played in the marketplace because you CEOs can't say much about each other's assets. Well, you know what yep. good looks like and you know what not so good looks like. But you can't say anything, and and us poor retail guys see some bright new shining phoenix rising and well matt i've got got something for you then i've got something for you i mean look um so just me just between you and me and and this won't this won't be a popular statement okay (laughs) Uh, amongst some of my 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 counterparts and peers but if the assets were good they were probably already owned by someone through the tough times okay if the assets are coming out of nowhere and you didn't even know about them and they're not a new discovery it's probably because they were on the scrap heap right thank you doesn't mean that, that there isn't folks? a basis <laughs> yeah doesn't mean there's a ba- there isn't a basis to generate some value for shareholders through that but i mean if it didn't make it through the last cycle and it was already there 
who's to say it's going to make it through this that's cycle. a different game that's, though. that's all i'm saying that's playing the market or gaming the market that's not the fundamentals of of, of good projects that's not the next macarthur river that is gaming the it's market not and if you know what you, you can't add into, value yeah it's not to say people can't add value and change a narrative and change and, and change a project but it's something to flag is that if it was really if it really had that potential it had been in someone's hands it had been something that someone was advancing or at least holding during the down years. Yeah. Watch out, folks. Be careful. Keep your eyes peeled. But in the meantime, David, thank you so much for that. Good to catch up. It was way too long the first time. You promised to come back on more regularly. We'll see you soon. Oh, I do want to pick you up on that teaser of the expiration and field program. And you've got a few things out of the way today. So I'm more interested in how you move this thing towards getting in production, how the market is moving and where you position yourself. Are you the next MacArthur River? There's the question. Well, Matt, I appreciate it. Thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.